I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Susan Eisenhower, a leading political consultant in Washington, D.C. for many years and author of a new book about her grandfather entitled How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions that came out this past August. We did a virtual interview as a program for the Dallas chapter of the Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge on December 2, 2020. Enjoy. Well, it's my great privilege uh, and pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Susan Eisenhower. Uh, Susan, uh, for years, for over 30 years, has been a leading political consultant uh, in Washington, D.C. She's the founding leader of the Eisenhower Group. Uh, She specializes in energy, which brings her to Texas from time to time. And she consults with Fortune 500 companies and other major clients. So that's uh, one of her many uh, talents and, and skills. She's also a policy analyst who's been a leader of the Eisenhower Institute at Gettysburg College and a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and at the Nixon Center. She also does ex- executive training in leadership for companies and at leading universities. And obviously this new book will certainly be helpful to, to everybody who's trying to learn more about leadership. And she's the author of five books, including a biography of her grandmother, Mamie Eisenhower, a book about cooperation in space exploration during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and also the book that we're going to be talking about tonight, Al Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions, which came out a couple of months ago. It's been critically acclaimed and uh, all kinds of recognition. So, Susan, welcome to the Dallas chapter of the Freedom Foundation of Valley Forge. Oh, Thomas, thank you so much, and and uh, everyone associated with this institution for giving me this wonderful opportunity. Well, great. Well, let's uh, let's get started since we have uh, limited time, and uh, I think everybody knows this, but you you actually knew. Dwight Eisenhower in two very different ways, uh, as a historian, a distinguished historian, and also as your grandfather. So let's talk about the grandfather side a little bit, just so people can, some people are very close to their grandparents, some people aren't. So give us a summary of the quantity and the quality of the time you spent with him between your birth in 1951 and his death in 1969. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful question. Uh, first, I should start by saying that um, I'm uh, fully compartmentalized. Uh, the, in the writing of this book was the first time I ever tried to put anything I know about him into a more serious context. So um, thanks, Mom and Dad, for helping us uh, figure out how to get through life by uh, keeping in our own uh, hearts and in our own uh, uh, intellectual framework, Dwight Eisenhower, the grandfather, and separating him from Dwight Eisenhower, the policymaker. That helped a lot in the early years after his presidency because he was under attack by his opponents, and it was a rather painful time. You know, we'd go to school and have to sit through history lessons with professors ranting and raving about 
Ike on the golf course and not doing anything and all this. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. So um, certainly that early training was helpful. So I was born in 1951, and one of, the, uh, one of my prized possessions is a little painting he did um, for me when he got the news of my birth. And it's, um, it's painted on a postcard. Um, and on one side is a picture of uh, a bouquet of flowers, and it says, uh, happy birthday in French. And then on the message side, he has painted the view uh, from his painting studio uh, at the residence uh, where he lived with my grandmother, Mamie, during his tenure as the first Supreme Commander of NATO forces in Europe. Uh, and so it's a charming thing that he went to the trouble uh, to somehow acquire a postcard that said, happy birthday, uh, and signed it to me. And this was very typical of him for the people he um, knew personally, and especially for people he um, was devoted to and, and cared for and loved. He was extraordinarily uh, attentive and he always found uh, ways to sort of build what we were doing into his time. Now, sometimes that meant um, spending considerable time at the White House, but for instance, after uh, my grandparents uh, really finally finished the extension onto a little farmhouse up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> it was in the uh, 19. 56. Uh, so this is in the um, going into the second term, Eisenhower's second term. Um, the president used to drive up from the White House to, to Gettysburg. And the way he kept in touch with all of the details with his uh, four grandchildren was to give us each a separate ride up. And um, oh, it'd be a big chance. You know, you could, I, I think, you know, I was like, Eight, seven and eight years old, that type of thing, and very, very interested in uh, what I was doing. He was particularly interested in the fact that I'd taken up horseback riding uh, because he had been a very fine horseman until he injured his knee playing football. And then a lot of things changed for him in his life because he didn't have the same athletic outlet. But he had a lot of interest in horses and was extremely interested in dressage. And I have a whole stack of letters he wrote me about my quote-unquote riding career. Now, I think that would be a, a, an absolute exaggeration. I did uh, end up being able to uh, canter and jump over fences, but we're not talking about anything, you know, really that great. But uh, <clears throat> another one of my prized possessions was the, um, the first riding trophy I ever won was a walk-trot um, <clears throat> class at a um, at a local horse show and I, I I won this little trophy it was about uh, a round trophy about this and about that that tall tiny tiny little thing and I hadn't noticed that the trophy disappeared but about two weeks later after this uh, granddad brought in brought my trophy back it was all wrapped up and he said I have something for you so I opened it up and it turned out that he had taken that little trophy and put it on a pedestal. <laughs> it's hysterical. The pedestal makes it look extremely important. So he was that kind of a guy. And anyway, he loved kids. He, he was fascinated by them. And in his retirement years, as my brother pointed out, and I can attest to this too, he was busy studying new math. So he could be sure to be up on the latest methods for how to uh, teach kids mathematics, and I think he had a mathematics streak, actually. Um, but it was all this kind of uh, detail. 
he lavished on us and how fortunate we were. The only time, um, I don't mean to take up too much time on this point, but the only time, well, there are two big um, uh, incidents where I realized that uh, I was on thin ice. Um, my middle school history teacher asked me to go back and ask granddad a series of questions. And boy, he didn't like that. Granddad never liked people using his grandchildren to get to him. You know, if, if the teacher wants to write him and ask him those things, that's one thing, but he didn't like this intermediary stuff. So, <laughs> but anyway, out of respect for my teacher, I said, okay, so I'd like to ask you why you didn't intervene in the Hungarian uprising. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he crossed his legs and he said, what? And start World War III? Next question. Okay. Right. I got it. <laughs> so that was one. The other one, uh, which is in my book, is that um, I was not paying enough attention. And five of the uh, the farm granddad's horses that I rode for him uh, escaped through the paddock gate, almost knocked me over, and then started running around um, the property while my grandparents were on the porch uh, having a cocktail before dinner and um, waiting for Ike's uh, American flag and his five-star flag to be lowered. This was a ritual that everybody went through every night. And just as they're about to get to the flag lowering, these five animals went running right in front of the porch and then did a big circle and ran right over his golf green, his pot putting green. Um, and um, well, it, it took a long time to round up these horses because uh, I thought they were always overfed, but uh, this was a good example of it. They're running all around. Um, and the Secret Service came to help. We had all the field hands out there. I'm running around after these guys were trying to corner them, blah, blah, blah. We finally get them settled down for the night. Then we went out and replaced the divots on the putting green. And then I had to go in and face the music. And I've never been so terrified in my life. I think, and that includes all the years I spent going to the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation. <laughs> I was never more frightened. I went in there and I got to the uh, uh, the door of the sun porch. I was already late for dinner. So this was not, you know, everybody was waiting for me. And uh, Ike was in his swivel chair that he always sat in and he swiveled around and he looked at me, hesitated for a second. He says, wow, I haven't seen horses run like that since I was a kid in Abilene, Kansas. Well, um, and then, of course, I took full responsibility for my actions. That was a good move. Um, but uh, I have to say that I'm always indebted to him. Uh, he understood. He had an absolutely uncanny way to read people. And one look at my face, and he immediately understood that I was already suffering and that he would never have to say anything to me. And that big, broad smile, wow, you know, well, we're going to have to do something about these horses. You know, we got to get, you know, it was just, it was amazing. Now, the golf green had to be taken out the following year because it caught, um, caught a rare tropical disease. And it wasn't until long after his death that the Park Service reinstated the putting green uh, at the Eisenhower Farm. So that's, uh, that's about the long and the, the, that's probably the short of the long of it, uh, Talmadge. But uh, um, he was, as his um, West Point yearbook described, it, as big as life and twice as natural. What power he projected. I mean, even to a kid. And I will say one final thing on that point about the horses. He knew about his physical power. He knew, he knew what effect it had on people. And if he had even raised his voice, I think I would have been, you know, 
devastated. Well, I was already devastated, but I think it might have really had a very, very negative effect. So, Speaking of powerful, I'm one of these people who's always intrigued with the epigraphs in a book. This is the opening quote, and it really uh, is intended to frame the book. And so for your epigraph for this book that we're going to talk about for the next several minutes, you chose General George Marshall's message uh, on uh, Victory in Europe Day, VE Day, March 8, 1945. So, Susan, uh, I'd like for you to read that aloud uh, to our audience and then explain your choice for making that your epigraph. Well, thank you. Um, I'd be happy to do that. Um, actually, General Marshall's letter to Dwight Eisenhower was even longer than what I'm going to read you, um, but it's all very much in the same vein. Um, he writes to Eisenhower, uh, you have completed your mission with the greatest victory in the history of warfare. You have commanded with outstanding success the most powerful military force that has ever been assembled. You have met and successfully disposed of every conceivable difficulty incident to varied national interests and international political problems of unprecedented complications. You have been selfless in your actions, always sound and tolerant in your judgments, and altogether admirable in the courage and wisdom of your military decisions. You have made history, great history, for the good of all mankind, and you have stood for all we hope for and admire in an officer of the United States Army. These are my tributes, and with them, I send my personal thanks. That, that, that's some kind of powerful language. So, so talk about the, uh, your decision to choose that for the epigraph. Well, the reason I did that is I, I say in uh, the introduction, I think this is a very important distinction, that Dwight Eisenhower was a strategic leader and not an operational one. And without getting into all the jargon of leadership, uh, let me just say that he could have never become the effective strategic leader he was if he hadn't occupied some important operational positions. But the strategic leader is the person at the top who's got to rationalize a million moving parts. Uh, he's got to uh, uh, you know, reinforce the goals by making sound selections about uh, resources, timelines, personalities, politics, logistics, uh, and all of the things that go into the overall operation. And so as I was reading the scholarship on Eisenhower during the war years, uh, so many scholars um, couldn't help it but um, publish the complaints of Ike's subordinates um, as if um, that had any relevance. And as a strategic leader, this would be like having uh, the director of marketing criticizing the CEO for not giving the marketing department enough money or giving that particular um, director enough authority. You see what I mean? In other words, the, uh, the, only, um, the only people whose opinion of Eisenhower's success that really mattered were his bosses. And uh, it is fair to say that he never lost the confidence of, of the people uh, that he reported to, and that would have been uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, and then, of course, uh, what was known as Cossack, which is a combined chiefs, which was like the board of directors of, um, of the war effort. Um, and so, you know, the rest is, is of course, interesting because um, I did have to manage those personalities and their desires, but, but truthfully, the evaluation needed to come from 
um, those uh, who uh, selected him to do this job and the people he reported to. Mm -hmm. Now, you say in your introduction that in 2020, today, uh, the United States has veered away from the guiding principles of, of Ike during his era. So what were those guiding principles from which America in the 21st century seems to have moved away from? Well, I think the one that stands out today, and, and actually if you read this book, I think it's, it's stunning how contemporary it is in many ways. And it's, there's a very interesting uh, and very simple answer for that. Um, the country, our country after World War II, uh, in almost no time at all, ended up in another war in Korea. And um, the change brought about by World War II, not only geopolitically, um, but in any, every other way, um, uh, made it a very turbulent time. Uh, in other words, there were um, uh, huge um, social issues that had been unleashed by the war. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a labor recalibration after World War II. Um, there, um, the United States was on wartime footing, even going into um, and, and during the Korean War. So uh, Ike arrives on this scene at a, at a time of tremendous um, upheaval in a way, the most important of which was uh, the advent of atomic weapons and, and the development of the hydrogen bomb. And Eisenhower as a general understood, almost, I mean, literally immediately that war would never be fought the same way again that it was the absolute game changer. And by the way, there were no uh, uh, rules of the road. Uh, there were, uh, it was uncharted territory. There was no way, uh, we hadn't even begun to think about what it meant uh, for the world and also for uh, the conduct of national security and, and, and uh, the implementation of uh, force. So uh, it was a very turbulent time. And I think that's why the book you know, has, has resonance. Um, because, um, so how we veered away from his approach during those years in a time that was really very similar. By the way, I'd like to point out that there was a pandemic in 1957-58 in uh, going into um, the midterm elections just after the launch of Sputnik and after Little Rock. I mean, it was a tremendously tumultuous time. The, the main thing that struck me is the way we now think about leadership differently. And the way we think about leadership today, whether we mean to do it or not, um, is that leadership is defined by staking out a position, digging your heels in and not moving an inch. And I can tell you, my friends, if that had been the attitude during World War II, Adolf Hitler would have won the war. Um, actually, what is so stunning about studying World War II is how much flexibility there was, how much compromise there was. We kept that alliance together with Great Britain precisely because uh, both sides were compromising all of the time. And Ike was a master at that, a master of bringing people into a room and, and um, you know, uh, rationalizing the differences between opinions and, um, you know, deploying, um, you know, all of the uh, leadership skills he had to uh, bring about uh, coherence from divergent viewpoints. But today it's a win or lose game. Winner takes all. And uh, we're going to have to learn how to compromise again, or this country is going to find it very, very difficult to move out of this particular uh, crisis that we're in at the moment. Um, and then let me uh, just, again, in the contemporary thing, one other idea, which I thought was 
uh, he built what he called the middle way during his two-term presidency. And this was that middle road where he could bring people from both sides to uh, reconcile their differences and agree upon um, steps for progress. And let's remember that Eisenhower was a man of action rather than a man of um, centrally focused on uh, words. So um, I thought one of the most stirring thing uh, was as he was talking about um, what was going to come to pass in America when the extremes of the right wing and the extremes of the left wing were the only voices, quote unquote, still heard in the public space. And then he went on to say that this is uh, dangerous. It's a national security issue. And he said that these deep divisions are a welcome. This is these are his direct quotes now a welcome sight to an alert enemy. Wow. So that kind of frames the, the contemporary field of the book. And I, I hope that answered your question, uh, Talmadge. Now, chapter one in your book <clears throat> is devoted to the leadership trait, accountability without caveats, which to me is an unlikely choice for the most important trait you think you'd choose for chapter one, what you think is uh, the most important trait. So, so give us your thought process. Why did that stand out to you uh, so that it would be the subject of your first chapter? Well, I can't, I can't help myself. You know, I'm, I'm a creature of our contemporary life and I live in um, Washington, D.C. So that should say enough to everybody here to understand what uh, life is like on a daily basis. And the one thing I've noticed, and it's not just recently, this has been going on for really a long time. You listen very carefully to our leaders and nobody ever accepts responsibility anymore. And that chapter is really about accepting full responsibility over a range of things, including things Eisenhower didn't control, like the weather forecast. He took responsibility for the weather forecast. Now, that's pretty stunning, but the, the reasoning would be, since I grew up uh, in this household where I could hear, uh, it was called the no excuses thing. We had the no excuses thing going on all the time. What is it? So as a kid, see, this is where I put what I knew about him as a kid into at least um, figuring out psychologically how he looked at things. But um, uh, he and my father would say, what is the answer to that question? And then you'd say, uh, in other words, why did this happen? Um, and then if you started to make an excuse, you'd say, no, the answer to that question is no excuses, sir. Uh, I said, well, what if you've got an excuse? It doesn't matter. You made the choice to proceed or you made the choice to do this in solving that problem instead of something else. So uh, I was very uh, moved in looking into the story of that note that Ike writes um, on June 5th, just as the troops are deploying uh, to, um, uh, to head to France and to uh, engage uh, Nazi power for, to bring the war to an end. And um, that night, uh, after making a very tough decision to drop airborne forces, even though uh, his technical advisor had said they would lose between 50 and 70 percent of those troops, uh, Eisenhower decided to do it anyway um, because they were the linchpin of the operation. And then on top of that, you have a, a, a very dicey weather forecast that I was surprised to discover in my research. Um, was not uh, a weather forecast that was agreed upon by everybody who was on the meteorological team. So you get a, a, a tricky forecast, um, a very big decision about the airborne troops, and he writes a note that says, um, you know, if this invasion fails, I'm paraphrasing here, 
um, and there any blame attaches to it, it's mine and mine alone. That includes uh, the airborne drop and the uh, and the air and the weather forecast and everything else. So that night he went out and he looked those airborne troops in the eyes and he wished them well and he talked to them about home. Um, uh, and he looked at those kids in the eyes thinking that there was a possibility that between 50 and 70% of them wouldn't come back. Well, it turns out Ike made the right gamble because the numbers were more like 4%, even though his own staff had recommended that he not uh, deploy them. Now, much has been written about the impact that Ike's mother, Ida, uh, had on him, uh, to the point even David Brooks, in one of his recent books, uh, talked about that as uh, such an impactful relationship. Uh, what, From your perspective, what are the main ways that his mother shaped uh, Dwight Eisenhower? Well, I think it's an excellent question. However, um, I will say that... Uh, uh, David Brooks and others have been a little hard on uh, Ike's father, uh, David Jacob. And I think that's because they really didn't understand, um, first of all, uh, the culture at the time. I, I'm sure they understand, but you have to put things into context, right? This is the spare the rod and spoil the child era. Um, but Ike's father um, was the disciplinarian. He really believed that um, his uh, seven boys, six surviving boys, would not survive in this world unless they were highly disciplined and worked really hard. And Ida, to your point, uh, was um, concentrated on a very different side of the child-rearing equation. She, um, as Ike said, was the one who always fostered the cooperation, was always looking for opportunities and I know that she played a very big role in helping Ike learn how to see things from other people's perspectives. Uh, think about what, how important that is in a leadership position. I mean, if you're trying to manage a fractious alliance, you've really got to spend some time thinking about where people are coming from in order to figure out the right way to interact with them. And by the way, it's also a discipline you have to use in assessing any enemy. But he has her to thank for that. And also, he, he adored his mother and um, tried very hard to emulate the kind of um, quietness and gentleness that she exuded. Uh, let's not make any mistake about it. Dwight Eisenhower had a volcanic temper that she tried to help him with in his early years. And he spent his whole life uh, keeping that under wraps. Now, if I could just say one more thing, because I think you're going to find this really funny. He had all kinds of tricks for managing his temper. Um, he would uh, write notes about who upset him or what the situation was. He'd crumple up the note and throw it in his bottom drawer at the White House. So his poor secretary had to go um, in every evening at five o'clock in the afternoon and empty the lower drawer. Okay. Then he would, um, he used visualization as a tool. Um, but his associates all told me the single most terrifying thing that Dwight Eisenhower did about his temper is he didn't use it. And they all knew that when he was trying to control his temper, what he would do is quietly get up and excuse himself and leave the room. And then several of his associates said to me, then we knew we were in trouble. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, it was his mother who probably helped him with all of those little techniques because he sure used them and he sure relied on them, too. Mm -hmm. Now, in Chapter 3, you note that uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a man of German heritage 
who was called upon to defeat his ancestors' homeland. So explain how immediately after the end of World War II, despite his German heritage, Ike addressed the legacy of the Nazis and the Holocaust. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I, I, I so benefited from discovering a book by um, uh, Sergeant Mickey McKeough, who was his aide uh, during the war, kind of his valet, his aide de camp. And, um, but he was more of a personal valet than, um, you know, involved in any of the uh, war-related activities. Um, but he said that when Ike went to um, see Ordruf, which was a subcamp of Buchenwald, um, Makia was absolutely shocked when Eisenhower came back. He said his face was black. He said he'd never seen the general's face like that in the entire war. And, and Makia kept using the word angry. He was angry. He was so angry. And um, actually, I got angrier and angrier as the war came to an end because the Germans did everything um, that was um, in violation of the Geneva Conventions and everything else. Uh, they, were, they were shooting uh, unarmed prisoners. Um, then, of course, the discovery of these concentration camps was extraordinary. And, um, you know, I can only speculate that after all of this, um, I'm going to say my grandfather in this case, because I usually refer to him as a president when I've got myself compartmentalized, but I can't even imagine how he processed what he saw because he was raised eating uh, sauerkraut and the, uh, um, the generation before Ike's generation all spoke German, you know, in this Kansas community. Um, so he must have had to ask himself, you know, who were these people? What, you know, uh, I think he, he must have been in any case, he was going to make sure that the Germans absolutely understand what they understood what they did. So um, I think it's, absolutely fascinating that right at the moment where he sees these atrocities, he says to himself, he says to the people around him, and then he goes back and writes to General Marshall, I want you to send photographers, I want you to send members of Congress, I want you to get everybody who is anywhere near these sites to go in and chronicle these um, atrocities, because 50 years from now, nobody's going to believe it ever happened. And our understanding of this Holocaust really comes um, from his orders. That day, after going through order, he was so angry, he made the, uh, the neighboring town, um, the mayor and uh, the townspeople, he made them go into that camp and see what had been happening right next to that town. And he made them give this, uh, the, uh, the deceased a dignified burial. Can you imagine what an experience that must have been like for the German population? Then he comes back uh, to the United States in, in June uh, for consultations and also for some victory parades and that sort of thing. And he gives a press conference and you can just, I mean, when I read the transcript, I could see his clenched jaw. So the press said, well, what do you make of all of this uh, news we're hearing about um, uh, these death camps and everyone? And Eisenhower said, I want you to know that I'm responsible for that. I want everyone to know. I've made a film, I've made the German population um, you know, watch um, what our troops uh, liberated. Um, and uh, he said that um, uh, just following orders was not good enough as far as he was concerned. I mean, he was really tough. And um, I don't know how much of that was uh, um, personal with him, but 
that he certainly knew one thing is that this can never happen again. Um, and, uh, and then after, um, after he felt that, you know, this message had been delivered, then he devoted the rest of his life to making sure that there would never be a war like that again. And it's significant, which is just blows my mind that 10 years to the day of victory in Europe, Dwight Eisenhower brings West Germany into the NATO alliance on that very day. And that's what he's saying to them, is it, you know, you've passed a test. I mean, or at least you're well on your way. And, um, but uh, this, was, this was a real example of a kind of toughness that we all knew in my family he had. We didn't, um, you know, we weren't subjected to it in, in the way you might think a family might be on the blowback end of these things because he was so disciplined, he could actually compartmentalize himself in terms of his work and the way he treated his family. But sorry for the long-winded answer, but, um, you know, I just don't know what we would have done if he hadn't made that order. But the fact that he thought about 50 years from now while he's standing there um, is something that's called in leadership circles, thinking in time. Um, thinking in time is the fourth dimension. Uh, the fourth dimension being consideration of the here and now dimensions with the added dimension of, of time. Well, I'm glad you gave a long answer because I think uh, what you just said is not well known. Uh, one of the many reasons why people need to read your book because uh, it obviously is incredibly important to, pres to preserving history and, and learn lessons from history to have the kind of record that he insisted on. So uh, thank you for that answer. Mm -hmm. now, one of the most amazing accomplishments of Ike's presidency was how soon he achieved a truce to end the Korean War after his inauguration, which was clearly something that Harry Truman had no idea how to do. So explain the high points of how I got us out of Korea so quickly. Well, it's um, it is um, um, it's an interesting story. First of all, I think we have to kind of think about who Dwight Eisenhower is at this stage of his life. I mean, he um, is a five-star general. Uh, he um, received the um, not directly, incidentally. I should just say very quickly. He did not want to breathe the same oxygen of those Nazi Germans. So when uh, the Germans finally negotiated the unconditional surrender, uh, it was the surrender was accepted by Eisenhower's deputy. Eisenhower didn't want to be in the same room with them, except for one minute. Uh, he made those uh, um, uh, yodel and um, uh, a number of other Nazi Germans. He, he made them uh, come up to his office. He said, do you understand I'm holding you personally responsible? Uh, for this unconditional surrender. They said, yes, I understand. You understand what you saw? And he said, yes. And he said, get out of the room. You know, that's what I mean about being angry. So, um, um, yeah, the um, all of the things he learned during the war, uh, and especially the strategic part, played a very important role in the Korean War. So people who begin to start looking, at, I'm saying the scholars, who begin to start looking at his presidency kind of forget he was a general too, right? So, I think what I tried to do is to make it clear that Dwight Eisenhower, the general, and Dwight Eisenhower, the president, was the same person. Um, so he gets, um, uh, he says, I'm going to go to Korea during the campaign. Um, and he makes a secret visit to Korea between uh, the election and the inauguration. And then he does something which I frankly think was pretty gutsy. He got into a helicopter 
and he made um, uh, and and he asked to tour the front by helicopter. He wanted to see where all the forces were positioned and the terrain and all the sort of things a real military leader would do. And he came back and um, you know he talked to his aides as usual. He called his old mentor and now quasi nemesis <laughs> Douglas MacArthur, and they had a chat about this. But Eisenhower was of the firm belief it was an unwinnable war unless it got escalated to the point where it could go nu nuclear. Um, so, you know, there's still some disagreement about how much, how this good cop, bad cop thing played out. Um, and I am not a scholar on the Korean War. I could have probably added more to it if I had been. But um, basically speaking, I think the, the bottom line here is, is that there was, everybody was tired. Not only was the West tired, but, um, you know, the Chinese and their allies uh, the Koreans, everyone was was tired, and with the right kind of push, um, they were willing to go into some serious negotiations about, um, you know, um, an armistice. So um, I think it's also worth saying that if he didn't have five stars on his shoulders and he had tried to be in the middle of that negotiation, it probably wouldn't have been taken as seriously. Uh, but when people are whispering, whispering to the Chinese, you know, you don't clear this up and we now have this extraordinary arsenal type thing. Um, you know, they probably had no doubt that a serious guy like Eisenhower meant it when he said it, that all, all options are on the table. So one final thing on this, I had uh, the great good fortune to have as my mentor, Eisenhower is a day-to-day -day national security person. General Andrew J. Goodpaster. He was almost like a father to me because uh, he and I founded the Eisenhower Institute together. And in all of my adventures in foreign policy, General Goodpaster was always whispering in my ear to, you know, carry on. Um, but he, I asked him once, do you think Dwight Eisenhower would have ever used a nuclear weapon? And he thought for a minute and he thought and he said, no. But boy, I'll tell you, he was a great bluffer. Back to that yeah. uh, great book that uh, Evan Thomas, Thomas wrote. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, my next question actually is tied into one of the questions that just popped into our chat box, and that has to do with one of the most fascinating parts of your book is the way you describe how Ike brought down Joe McCarthy and, oh, ended, the, and ended the witch hunts in 1954. And going back to your opening comments, the strategic leader, talk about his strategy uh, for bringing down McCarthy. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's really funny. After you write a book and you sort of get it all out there, and especially if you're under the kind of deadline that most writers are under, sometimes you're not even sure what you've written until you've written it. It's out. People are responding to it, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized that what I might have hit a little bit harder, though I certainly implied in the book, is that Eisenhower is a genius at really being able to analyze what he controlled and what he didn't control. So you, all, you also see this in the Little Rock crisis. Dwight Eisenhower does not control state government, and it's state governments who are responsible for the school systems, right? Um, so in the case of Joe McCarthy, um, what he understood absolutely is that he didn't control Joe McCarthy. It's the Senate of the United States that controlled Joe McCarthy. Um, so Eisenhower's strategy was to do exactly the opposite of what everybody uh, was urging him to do and what Joe McCarthy wanted desperately. Joe McCarthy wanted the president of the United States to attack him because his Joe McCarthy strategy 
was to use all the publicity as a way of elevating himself as an important person uh, in GOP politics and, and possibly one day a presidential candidate. So, you know, Ike the warrior said uh, to himself, no doubt, maybe he didn't put it like this. He knew it instinctively. If your enemy wants something, don't give it to him. Um, and he had everybody on his case. The opposition was on his case. Um, uh, people in the administration was on his case. He even had a couple of brothers uh, write him and say, come on, Ike, stand up and criticize uh, McCarthy publicly. You've got to take a stand here. And Eisenhower said, no, that's exactly what McCarthy wants. He wants to start a fight. He wants to be elevated to the level of the presidency. But in his strategist head, he's saying um, to himself this other calculation that's even more important, which is, who is the source of McCarthy's strength? It was the Senate of the United States. And those are the people who had to censure McCarthy. They were the ones with the constitutional power to do that. Um, so if you get up and insult somebody, um, in effect, you're insulting the people who also support him. Um, and so we thought that isn't the way to, to do this. I'm going to go behind the scenes and persuade the people who have the control over McCarthy's future to silence him, finally. And that is what happened. It took some time, but, um, you know, it was a very... Um, sophisticated strategy, and it's one that has brought with it a lot of misunderstanding of Eisenhower's leadership style. But as Eisenhower once said uh, during the war, um, you know, we're here to win the war, not to uh, uh, write our own uh, PR press releases. You know, we're not writing for, um, you know, <clears throat> adulation. We're, we're here to, to do our duty and to uh, meet our goals. So, I think that's what he did with McCarthy. Well, my next question is all is tied into the second question in the chat box, and that is uh, Eisenhower's uh, policy uh, and actions in connection with the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about uh, Little Brock. Obviously, uh, Brown versus Board of Education came out the first one in '54, the second one in '55, and he brought in the the U.S. military to enforce uh, the Brown decision. But as I was reading. Yes, I love the way you said he, he established a beachhead. Right. You said right. war term, you know, you got to start somewhere at moving this forward and you got to have a beachhead like uh, D-Day. Uh, but I was reminded of Lincoln. He had a this amazing sense of kind of where the American uh, public sentiment was and that if you went too fast, There'd be all kinds of a chaotic reaction since so many of the Jim Crow laws were, were still in effect. So talk about, again, his strategy for dealing with a, a very complicated problem where there was a lot of conflicting advice about how to handle it. Yeah, that's a, that's a um, very well said, Talmadge. Um, and so just to add a few things about that, I um, there's a very uh, fine Eisenhower scholar named David Nichols who's written three books on Eisenhower. One is uh, Eisenhower 1956, which is about the Suez Crisis. Another is on Eisenhower and McCarthy. And uh, the first one actually was uh, called A Matter of Justice. It's about Eisenhower and civil rights. So um, obviously I read all three of these books. Um, uh, I knew... Uh, and I use many, many, many other sources too. But the one thing that uh, struck me about Eisenhower's uh, um, 
and I'm sorry, the way uh, David Nichols wrote about Eisenhower in uh, and civil rights. I, I called him up. I said, uh, um, Dave, I mean, I, I now at this point know this author pretty well. And I said, Dave, you know what I think you're really saying is that his strategy was, was to establish a beachhead, make sure, to your point, Talmadge, that you don't get too far ahead of the, your supply lines, right? Um, and uh, to... to uh, Take the real estate you can, uh, you know, you can achieve and control that. So again, back to this whole issue of control. Uh, he didn't control uh, the state governments or their um, influence and authority um, over high schools, um, and he didn't. Um, uh, and, and that's primarily what he didn't control. What he did control was the federal government. And so, as he says in his first State of the Union address, he just maps out a strategy in the first State of the Union address. He says that he's going to desegregate everything that the federal government controls. So that would be a typical, um, I'm going to invade uh, Normandy. We're going to secure, um, you know, the Normandy region, right? Uh, in that particular uh, case, it took some time, uh, took to about um, midsummer of 1944. But, you know, you establish your beachhead and then from there you can uh, you can move forward, um, you know, with uh, all kinds of other flexibility. So by the end of his eight years, he had desegregated Washington, D.C. He took uh, Truman's executive order and actually desegregated the military and military schools. Uh, he desegregated uh, federal contracting. Uh, every federal judge who uh, was under consideration by the Eisenhower administration uh, was not allowed to apply if they were white segregationists or were against integration. And those judges went on to outlast them um, by a long distance. So, um, you know, there are many other details of things um, that I actually, during the war, he desegregated the blood supply. Can you imagine how controversial that was? Uh, so um, anyway, I think for a lot of people, Talmadge, that that chapter, you know, is a, is a bit of a surprise. Um, because a lot of the mythology that he didn't get along with Earl Warren, who was a Supreme Court justice, is simply not true. Uh, they had their differences um, on a number of other issues, but not on the civil rights question. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, Ike is famous for uh, was his farewell address and his warning about the military-industrial complex, but that needs to be placed in the context of his foreign policy and how uh, JFK ran for president, uh, saying that the, there was a missile gap, which was a total lie, later proved to be a lie, uh, and, and, but it was instrumental in causing historians, Arthur Schlesinger and others of that era, to be very critical about uh, Ike's performance as president, such mm -hmm. that in 1963, the, the ranking poll had him in deep in the 20s, you know, uh, not even in the top half. And yet in the most recent uh, C-SPAN poll in 2017, he's rated fifth behind Lincoln, Washington, and the two Roosevelts. So uh, give us your uh, perception on, on kind of what was going on in or around 1960 that caused this widespread perception that, that Eisenhower had not been effective and as Harry Truman says, it takes 50 years for the dust to settle. Well, it's now been 50 years, and he's, he's the fifth greatest of all time. So 
give us your assessment of kind of that process of appreciation. I think the process of appreciation boils down to um, at least, um, first of all, Eisenhower's leadership style was very, very different. Um, you know, it's interesting. People uh, love leaders using the bully pulpit as long as the person using the bully pulpit agrees with the listeners. Right. Uh, the bully pulpit is can be a double edged sword sometimes. And uh, Eisenhower understood that. Besides that, his own personality uh, was more uh, strategic. If you look at the way he conducted himself during World War II, he was always giving credit to other people and letting other people uh, shine. But I, um, I think probably the biggest change comes because um, Eisenhower himself. Uh, realized that he wasn't very well understood. And so many of the really tough decisions he had to make uh, were, were classified. Uh, this all had to do with the, uh, uh, the advent and the uh, uh, increasing sophistication of uh, rocketry and nuclear weapons and all of the things that go with that. Uh, aerial reconnaissance, starting with the U-2 and later with the Corona Project and reconnaissance satellites. Uh, I have a chapter there called Playing the Long Game, and I think you'll all be very surprised that um, actually the Eisenhower administration was rather hoping that the Russians would launch their artificial satellite first. We were preparing, we did that in a joint agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union to launch an artificial satellite in 1957. But <laughs> what the Russians didn't realize is that they accidentally established the precedent for free access to space. And the Eisenhower administration had been very worried that if we'd gone first, the Russians would have said, that's unacceptable. Space can't be free because we wouldn't let you overfly our country in a U-2. So why on earth were the Russians going to let us go around in a reconnaissance satellite every 90 minutes over Soviet, uh, over their Soviet territory? So they, the, we kind of boxed the Russians into um, averting a world war three over access to space, all of those things were behind the scenes and not understood by people who were uh, very, very worried. So let me just sort of wrap this up by saying that one of um, um, Ike's death, I think the only deathbed wish that I recall that uh, granddad instructed us to assure um, was that the archives be opened as soon as possible. Now, he's got a long record from uh, war years and the rest of it. Even after the war, he wanted even the Yalta agreements. He wanted all those papers open to the public um, because uh, it's just the, the way he just believed in transparency. But he really pressed on my siblings and me and um, my father, who was the executor of his will at that time. Um, every request, say yes. Make sure everybody at the Eisenhower Library who works there uh, ask every uh, scholar coming in to please file a Freedom of Information Act request. So today, actually, the Eisenhower um, Library has probably declassified a higher percentage of uh, classified material, um, you know, per the number of years they've been in business um, than any other, and we're proud of that. Um, but at, after you open up the archives, then um, people begin to understand that this was more complex than the way we thought it was. And then, Talmadge, if you'd allow me to say uh, one more thing, and it has to do with why I wrote the book, but it's back to the farewell address. Uh, on the missile gap, uh, Ike realized that uh, his own comrades uh, in arms from World War II uh, had been leaking um, threat assessments 
that were not consistent with all of the threat assessments that were uh, conducted by various parts of the government. Um, they were um, predicting uh, the Soviet Union's intentions rather than their capabilities. Um, and uh, the military themselves were in this game, um, you know, with uh, members of Congress who were calling about it missile gap. And um, this kind of, to say that this offended Ike, um, I think it more frustrated him. And he realized that actually the power of this little cabal uh, between Congress and uh, the military over military spending, and that's what it was. It was a rebellion to Eisenhower's, um, you know, deficit hawk ways. Um, and in typical Eisenhower form, he held everybody he was closest to, to the highest standard. And uh, I don't think that the military were really too thrilled about all of this. Uh, he'd already put through a, a Defense Reform Act in 1956 that defanged um, the four services uh, in terms of being able to lobby, lobby separately for their own budgets. Um, and uh, that's what that speech is about. It's about the missile gap and it's about his colleagues saying, um, you serve this country, you don't serve yourself. And um, only probably a five-star general could have um, made that comment uh, and turn it into a <clears throat> lasting part of the nation's legacy. Mm -hmm. Now, for my last question, since unfortunately our hour is almost up, <clears throat> uh, Gene Edward Smith titled his biography of your grandfather, Eisenhower in War and Peace. Mm -hmm. And e Evan Thomas's biography, Ike's Bluff, ended with, quote, he was a man who understood the nature of war better than anyone else and who had the patience, wisdom, cunning, and guile to keep the peace. Lincoln, Eisenhower's heroes, went to war to save the Union. Eisenhower, in the nuclear age, avoided war to save the world. So, Susan, as a historian, which is more impressive to you? Dwight Eisenhower, the war leader, or Ike, the peacekeeper? <laughs> That's a tough one. And I think the only thing um, that I can say is that by the time he got to the presidency, he was, nobody really had the kind of experience he did. Because the presidency, too, is a strategic leadership job. I mean, he was, he was you know, trained for it during the war. And so, in a way, I kind of admire how... Um, he crafted something that had never been done before during World War II. There had never been a supreme allied commander of an inter a nationally integrated force that included the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. It was the first time in warfare. So it was Dwight Eisenhower that cut the cloth on that concept. Um, and then uh, he brought that with us to the White House. And I think his performance during the White House years, now way better understood, um, you know, is, uh, well, it's humbling. Uh, he would be, you know, he died when he was ranked uh, 22nd on the list. I sometimes wonder, you know, did it hurt him? Um, we didn't see signs of it particularly, but, but really where he um, had to do something that had never been done under dire circumstances in an emergency uh, that meant the, the future of Europe, the future of the, uh, the Jewish uh, population. Um, uh, we had to, to, to be victorious in, in Europe before the Nazis developed the atomic weapon. 
Uh, I mean, to be working under that kind of strain uh, in that pointed a way, uh, I think stood him in good stead for uh, the 1950s when he had to recreate um, a whole concept around the use um, uh, of nuclear weapons. So uh, it's a sort of um, uh, two sides of a coin, but I would say that the the wartime years, uh, he wouldn't have been president if it hadn't been for the wartime years. And uh, so maybe that's just a long-winded enough way to say that, uh, you know, I remain agog at what he did during that war. And um, and it's it's been a lasting it's been a lasting piece in Europe, which is really quite remarkable. Well, on behalf of the Dallas chapter of the Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge, Susan, we want to thank you uh, for this hour. Uh, you're incredibly well spoken. Uh, I think everybody has learned a great deal, and I encourage everybody. If you haven't got it already, this is, as I said in my review, it's it's a leadership textbook. Was uh, filled with great examples, and so Susan, knowing now that you come to Dallas uh, every so often, we hope that uh, we get to see you uh, when things open up again. But uh, thank you for a wonderful. Well, I, I would love to do that, and thank you all for this wonderful opportunity. I have to tell you before we leave the call is that I, I had two summer jobs at Freedom's Foundation in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I was a, a tour guide, uh, so I'm well familiar with your work and uh, uh, respect and admire what you do. So thank you for this great opportunity. Susan Eisenhower's new book about her grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower, is worthy of becoming a textbook on leadership. It's no wonder he's recognized by many as the greatest leader of the 20th century. You can find How Ike Led wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.